0: Well, good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, October 15th, 2023. And the title of our message this morning is Sinners in the Hands of a Gracious God. Come on. Look, there's no hiding it. These are times that we are living in that truly vex the soul of any righteous man. What we've seen going on in the world is dark, horrific, evil. But honestly, we were not unprepared for this. We have been prepared in every way for what we are seeing in Israel and throughout the rest of the world. This church has been through Chronicles together. We've been through Jeremiah together. We've been through Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and the book of Acts. We know what is going to happen. Adonai has prepared us relentlessly for this hour. Recently, we've been studying God's timeline, His biblical timeline, and the Sukkot that is to come. We've learned that we are in the last hour on the earth. That means that it is our time to shine. That means... That when Israel is at war, we are at war as well. Not with physical weapons, at least not now, but with weapons of righteousness in our hands. Pressing the battle forward in what God has always called us to do before this ever happened. We belong to one family, the family of Israel. Therefore, when our family is attacked, we go to war. I've listened to questions from Jews and Gentiles asking, what do we do as a people? Well, the answer has always been the same. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse six says, observe them carefully for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us Whenever we pray to him. That has always been the answer. But it's even more the answer now. In a time like this. Church. When the sky is at it's blackest moment. The stars shine ever so brighter. What do we do as the people of God? We do what we are called to do. We shine brighter by performing the actions of the word of God, and doing it in such a loud manner that it causes the nations around the world to ask, what kind of people is this? As we get into our message today, you're gonna find that what I just shared with you has a lot to do with today's content. Today, we are going to, our aim is to inspire you, Come on. to do what you do, to do what you're called to do, To do what you already do, but to do it even better and with more vigor and passion than never before. Our message is entitled, Sinners in the Hands of a Gracious God. Now to do that, to really understand what that means and what we're aiming at here, we're going to have to go through a few scriptures on who God is and who he's been and who he will be and what his character is like. But before we do that, We want to start with who we are, who we were, what scripture says about us, and then maybe out of that, we can understand who God is to us. We're going to start in Psalm 53, verse 2 through 3. Y'all say there when you're there. That's not everybody. There we go. Yeah. Verse two says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Now, I know that this is a principle that we are all aware of, but it's not a principle that we think of often enough. The Scripture unequivocally declares that there is no one who is righteous. There is no one who is sinless. But moreover, it says that we all together have become corrupt. That all human beings are not just Beings that do bad things. We do bad things because all human beings are inherently bad. All human beings are inherently evil. All human beings are inherently corrupt. That is a statement that is not more true for one person and less true for another. It is equally true for every human being that has ever lived. That's why there's a huge issue... With telling a testimony that goes something like this: "Hey man, I, you know, before I was born again, I was just such a wicked person. I mean, I mean, I was at a level of wickedness that most won't even understand. The reason that's an issue is because it doesn't matter how wicked someone seems, all men are equally wicked. Yeah, you think of the most evil person in all of history. A name might come to your mind like. Adolf Hitler. See, somebody said it before I got, got to it. We tend to think that a man like that is more evil than, say, a Mother Teresa. Sorry if I'm stepping on any toes. But it's not true at all. Adolf Hitler is not more wicked than any other man. He just acted in his inherent wickedness more than any other man. He is just as wicked as the sweet old lady that's trying to cross the street who has not repented for her life of sin and her evil thoughts towards God, but seems nice because she knits and quilts. All men are equally wicked, bound over to evil, cannot stop thinking about evil, cannot stop doing evil. All men are equally wicked. Bound over to sin. And that is the state that the Bible declares that we were in prior to God. Many of you know what I'm saying is true because you experienced it. And that's what drove you to the loving arms and the saving mercy of Jesus Christ. Because you knew deep down inside, I can't be free of this wickedness in my own power. We need to to really grasp who God is. We have to understand who we were. And we have to understand what he has done in us and what he has done for
1: us. Man, that first verse says that God looked down from heaven. And what happened is that actually man turned away. So God was looking for a man to see if one would understand. But what men were doing was turning away from God when he was looking for that man. And so they persevered. We persevered in our wickedness. And you can relate with this completely, can't you? Can you think about those times when you just persevered? You know that God was pursuing you. He was after you. He was causing things to change. There was no coincidences. People were coming after you. Event after event was being, you were facing it. And yet, as God was looking down upon you, you were looking away. Man, I can relate with that completely. Actually, Paul cites this passage to say that Jew and Gentile, they're all, they're all under this kind of sin. Yeah. Yeah. There is no one less or more, all are under this. Yes. Isaiah also reflects on this truth. He reflects on the state of wicked mankind, but he does it from another standpoint. He does it from the standpoint of being the chosen people of God. Even after God had been merciful. So strong in coming like a husband and redeeming his bride. After doing that, pulling her out. After he had been so faithful in bringing them into the promised land. I mean, talk about that faithfulness. 40 years going through with them. Being faithful to them and actually with a strong arm giving them the land. Even after he had established the kingdom in their land. Like took them from being slaves to now being kings in their own land. This is what Isaiah says that they have become. Isaiah 64, verse 6. It says, We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That is like filthy rags. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take a hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. This is Isaiah remembering all that the fathers done and yet what they have become. After having, shown, having been shown so much mercy, sin still being rampant. Any righteous deeds... Hey, understand this. Any righteous deeds, while we are in a state of sin, they are what? Filthy rags. They're like filthy undergarments. They're things that nobody wants to see. Neither God wants to see. Again, this verse says, you know what? No one calls upon his name. I love this verse. No one rouses himself to take a hold of him. As if there's an action, there's a necessity to rouse yourself and say, I'm not going to stay here, I'm going to take a hold of him. No one was doing that. The state, the wicked state of mankind, continuing through generations, even while the faithfulness of God had been shown over and over again. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that sobering? Well, verse 8 gives you a different kind of sobering. We're going to get
0: to verse 8, but before we do, when you hear filthy garments, you should be thinking about last Sunday's message and the filthy garments of the priest becoming the wick that burns during Sukkot. Yeah. But one thing you have to grasp with is why are man's best works like filthy rags? Why are they, why are they nothing? Why can't, why can't people just outweigh sin with good, good deeds? Why can't they do that? Because man's good deeds essentially are nothing but a cover-up yeah. to justify the evil deeds that they continue to do. Yeah. That's very good. You see, if you take a leper, which I know most of you haven't seen a leper. Those of you who have been in India and uh, Africa, you've seen a leper. If you take a leper and you place the leper right in front of the stage with his flesh rotting, Pus oozing all over his body. Completely corrupt. Stench that you can smell from 50 feet away. And then you take that man and you try to cover him over with silk to hide that corrupt flesh. What's going to happen is that corrupt flesh is going to soil those silk garments. And it's going to ruin those silk garments. You see, you cannot cover over with good deeds, corrupt flesh. It's not possible. In fact, every man who is not in Christ and is still a sinner, the good deeds that he thinks he's doing are just an attempt to justify himself and get God to not look at his wicked deeds. Therefore, every good deed done in that manner is done in pride before God. I don't need a savior. I am good on my own. Look at the good deeds I can do.
1: That is just silk covering corrupt flesh. And you, you, we may think that this is the past life, right? I mean, I can relate with this BC, right? Before yeah. Christ, I can remember the many thousand times that in my own sin, I tried to do something good because I knew the bad that I was doing. So I tried to balance it. But it's not, it doesn't stay back there. You've seen, when do you get more zealous? Well, I get more zealous. If you see me zealous, ask me, hey, bro, what, everything is okay? Because when I get more zealous, it may be because I'm trying to cover up things that have been in my heart, right? It doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay past life. We have to wrestle with the wicked state of mankind today. So now have we grasped
0: with the depravity of man? Do we feel that weight? Good. As Elder Charlie usually says, it's time to pull up now, brother. <laughs> in that same verse yeah. in Isaiah 64, in that same line of thought, in understanding the total depraved nature of not just all men, Israel, the ones who were chosen and received the most significant acts of devotion from the hand of of Yahweh and Adonai that there ever was, if they are depraved, if they are still in sin, but in that line of thought, listen to what verse 8 says. But now, but now, O Lord, you are our father. Yes. Wow. By the way, I never believed the lie that the Older Testament doesn't relate to Adonai as a father. But now, O oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire. And all of our pleasant places have become ruins. You see, it is in this moment of recognition... Of the true state of all humanity. That Isaiah can see the work of God in his hand in reforming the nation the entire time. In the light of the weakness of Israel. In light of the failure of Israel. Isaiah is looking up and saying, we have failed, but you have not failed Adonai. You are a faithful God, you are a father, you are a potter, and we are all the work of your hands. It is the understanding of Isaiah, after grappling with his own condition and the condition of his nation. It is his understanding that God is the one who has formed us all, and we are at his mercy and we are still here because he has been good to form us. He has been faithful to shape us. Even though we had nothing in and of ourselves that deserved any of it at all. Boy, think about the character of our God for a second. Most of us, if a co if a coworker, you know, brings coffee for the rest of the office and forgets you. <laughs> whoo, it's on. <laughs> yeah. You'll be picking a fight with them over something that they didn't do right. And you're not even concerned with what they didn't do right. You're still mad about the coffee Mm. incident. You see, God has a character that we cannot fathom. He has a character that we can't understand in our finite ability to interact with God as a perfect, infinite being. We cannot fathom the faithfulness of God on that level because we don't have it in and of ourselves. For me, when somebody does me wrong, it's like, yeah, I'm gonna come back 10 times uh, stronger right back at you. You mess with me, uh, if if you mess around, you're gonna find out. You're gonna find out why I don't pay for health insurance if you mess with me. But see, that's due to my wicked nature And for me, trying to understand God's faithfulness, it is a little bit difficult to grasp because I don't see it in myself. I don't see that I am actually worthy to receive that kind of faithfulness. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't stop Adonai from being faithful because that's who
1: he is. So Isaiah, in the same thought, in the same verse, he goes on proclaiming the wickedness of mankind, the wickedness of Israel, what they've been through. And in the same thought, He's able to juxtapose and say, but God, but God, you are our potter, but you are our father. But, you know, even if I see wickedness inside of me, I know that I'm in the hands of a perfect father, of a perfect potter, one that does not make mistakes, one that will work as much as it takes until he finds the perfect vessel that he was looking for, one father that will work on his children diligently, With all his heart, with all his strength, with whatever it takes. If it takes comfort, if it takes encouragement, if it takes discipline, if it takes complete desolation. Whatever it takes is going to work until he sees his sons edified and radiant like he wants them to be. You can have those two thoughts in the same sentence, in the same verse. And that will give you an, uh, an appreciation for the character of God. We're elevating What is currently there, we just choose not to see it. The wickedness of mankind. But Isaiah in the same verse also elevates the faithfulness of our Father. And it causes us to see Him more clearly. This verse goes on. We read it in verse 10. It says, Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem a desolation. But we can also see the hope of the prophet Isaiah as well. Can you not? So today... You're going to stand up right now, and we're going to pray for Zion. We're going to pray for Jerusalem. We're going to pray for the people that he has chosen. We're going to pray for that which you cannot see yet, but you will see in the future. We're going to stand with God and his purposes. So, Father of glory, today, we lift our cry to you because you are faithful. Because you are the one who calls the end from the beginning. And not only that, you work to make it happen. Your faithfulness stands to the heavens. Father, your glory to the clouds. You are the one that has redeemed your people. You are the one that has established them. You are the one that chose them. They didn't even choose themselves. So right now we ask you, Father, not only that you would protect them, but that you would give them a heart that does not rely on their own arm, but that they rely on the arm of you, almighty God, Father. We pray for your people. Redeem them again. Show them your face. Shine the light of your face upon them. And cause them to be established in the land that you promised their father Abraham. In the name of Yeshua we pray. Let's go to our next verse. To To continue to bask in the faithfulness of God in the midst of a chaotic and wicked human nature. Psalms 103, verse 8. It says, Yehovah, the Lord, He is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide like I do, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins. No repay us according to our iniquities. Man. Think about it. Think about how merciful and gracious the Father has been to you. And how many times you should have been repaid. So much heavier. Sometimes you weren't even repaid. Let's just put it that way. There was simply no, you did not have to repay. You know what? Because if you had had to repay everything that you had done, then Yeshua's sacrifice would have been nullified. Yep. He paid for you. And in that justice, he also forgave you. He said he would not always chide or keep his anger forever. Because his anger is purposeful. His anger is not just a, a blast of wrath and of a man that cannot contain himself. His anger causes change in his people. His anger is aimed towards the restoration, the comfort, and the glorification of his people. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He doesn't. He should, but he doesn't. In the midst of mankind's wickedness, he chooses not to repay us according to our iniquities. He chooses to exalt this part of his character and cause you to see the un- like the unmerited mercy that he has shown you. He causes to exalt his character above your own wickedness so that your wickedness would not be the one thing that you just look at, but you would look at the holiness, the righteousness, the mercy, and the graciousness of our God. Remember this message is entitled what? Sinners in the hands of a gracious God. Let's go on to verse 11. Verse
0: 11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth. How high is that? Men have been trying to study for a thousand years. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Notice it doesn't say towards those who are perfect. Oh, yeah. That's kind of the comforting thing with understanding that we are all equally, dep- well, we were all equally yeah. depraved. The comforting thing about it is, is We can understand that's what I was. And this is what I'm moving towards. It doesn't have to be a shock to you that you were wicked. And it doesn't have to be a shock to you that you are still in need of transformation. But his love is towards those who what? Fear him. Fear him. Those that have a righteous fear of God. Who are afraid of disappointing him. And who are afraid of rebelling. That's all of us in this room. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You need to think about that statement for a second. As Christians, we've grown up our whole lives believing, oh, well, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. And we kind of take it for granted what we've received from the powerful hand of Adonai. You got to understand something that God doesn't just choose to overlook your sin. He doesn't just choose to not punish you. In fact, in Proverbs, I'm sure many of you can find it, and if you can't, ask Pastor Peyton. He loves Proverbs. In Proverbs, it says, It is an abomination to the Lord to acquit the guilty, it is an abomination. For the Lord to just forgive those who are guilty. So how can God be both just. To be both righteous and perfect. But also forgive us who are guilty. How is that even possible? It's not in God's nature to just overlook sin. It's not in God's nature to just give a free pass. Because he is the definition of justice. It is his being That hates sin. It is because of his character that we even know what sin is. So how can he just forgive it and look the other way? Because God in his wisdom. In his own justice. And in his own perfection. And in his own righteousness. Provided a way of atonement for you. So that the just punishment that fell on you. Could fall on another Who is the only one who can pay that just punishment, the righteous one, the king of kings, the perfect man who has the fullness of God himself in him. That's how God can look the other way. When you understand that, can you not marvel at the wisdom of God and what he's done for his people? Can you not marvel in his justice that it took the perfect man, Jesus Christ, to pay your sacrifice and God sustained him with his hand so that he could pay your sacrifice? What an incredible sovereign God we serve. What a faithful and merciful and loving and gracious God we are in the hands of. This truly shows that none of us are great in and of ourselves. It shows that we are in the hands of a God who is the highest God, and there is none like him. That he demonstrates his deeds on the earth through what he performs for his saints, and that is us, and that is Israel. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love, his ongoing love, his chesed, his kindness, his ever-loving kindness.
1: Verse 13 goes on to say, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place it knows no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The great thing about God is that he knows who he is. He's is a father who shows compassion to his children. The question for us is, he knows what he's working with. He, know, he, is a, he knows he's the potter. And he knows you are clay. He knows he's a father. And he knows that you are flesh. He knows what he is working with. The question is, do you know who's working in you? Oh, yeah. if he, he, he knows exactly who he is. And he remembers that you are but dust. <laughs> he remembers that. He knows it. He's never escaped his mind. He's fully aware of your complications, of your pride, of your inabilities. He's fully aware, aware of all that. But do we know the potter? Do we know the God, the Father that is working in us? Do we know the God who is majestic and is not inhabilitated by our own sin? He is beyond our wildest thoughts and imaginations. He shows compassion, like Justin said, not to those who are perfect. In fact, those who fear him. Because when they sin, they tremble and they cannot stay where they're at. They know their sin exists inside of them. And what happens is that they... Quake before the face of God. They say, I cannot stop. I cannot remain like this. It's like the man on a cross. I am not going to remain like this. A man on a cross scolding the other man on the cross. Telling him, do you not even fear God? How can a guilty man tell another, hey, do you not even fear God? Because they were both guilty. But one understood that he was going to face his creator and his master. The fear of God is what enables us to receive his compassion as a father.
0: I love the statement in verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. What an incredible God. You know, understanding what we now know, God could have easily, the moment that there was a heavenly rebellion, the moment that there was an earthly rebellion in Genesis... God could have easily just gone to his council, his high council in the heavens, and go, All right, guys, we all know where this is going. We're going to wipe them out completely and start over. He could have easily done that. And he would have been just to do it. But he didn't. He didn't. He remembers that we are like grass, he knows our frame, he knows that we are weak. And he doesn't choose to do away with us with that knowledge. He doesn't choose to do away with us with that knowledge. He chooses to empower us. He chooses to come down, show us the way to live, faithfully over time give us instruction, and empower us to walk out that instruction so that we can receive salvation. Boy, that that is something else. Uh, I'm a man that struggles sometimes with my own state because I hate weakness. I'm prideful. I don't like to show weakness to anybody. And because that's the case in me, sometimes when I see weakness in other people, I, I'm repulsed. I, I, I'm, I revile it because I see weakness in human beings, and then I know that that same weakness is inside of me, and I don't want to admit it. But thank God we have a merciful father that doesn't just turn his face away from the weakness of our state. But he looks right at it and says, I am going to do something with this. I am going to change it. I am going to empower it. I am going to demonstrate my chesed and my love and actions towards these people. You can imagine what the heavenly realms think about God when they, like, you can't... (laughs) You judged us, but you're taking these weak human beings and you're going to reform them? What kind of God is this? That's what Ephesians 3 is all about. Demonstrating his manifold wisdom to the higher powers in the heavenly realms. See, God is such a great God that we serve. Isaiah 42 verse 6 says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. (laughs) To be quite clear, there is no way of knowing for sure. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. When the Lord says, I have called you in righteousness, that is him looking at people like us, pretty well screwed up folk like us, and saying, I see your state, but I'm calling you in righteousness. My call to you is established by my righteousness, and my call to you will be defined by my righteousness. I will establish my righteousness in your life. Don't be surprised when the moment of correction comes. And you're at a moment and you realize, man, I can't, I can't understand how I got to this. You know, I can't believe I overlooked so many things in my life, and now I have to be corrected uh, by the pastors or my brothers, and I should have been working on this beforehand. Yeah, don't be surprised at that. That is because the Lord has called you in righteousness and he has promised that he will call you in righteousness in the future and he will establish righteousness for you oh, that he will work righteousness for you he says i will take you by the hand come on. and keep you you know what that doesn't look like that doesn't look like this come on follow me we're going to do this together This is the Lord saying, no, I've called you by righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will lead you where I want you to go. You see, all of us have experienced that. All of us have experienced the Romanian proverb. A kick in the pants is a step in the right direction. And it doesn't mean that you're a failure. It doesn't mean that you're rejected by God. What it does mean that he's demonstrating his faithfulness over you that he will take you by the hand even though sometimes you may want to go in a different direction. You see, our God is powerful and sovereign and he is faithful to keep us even when we don't want to be kept sometimes. We don't want to be kept sometimes. Our God will overpower in the moment and he has a very awesome fatherly way of looking at you and saying, Hey, I see where you're at right now. Even though you have felt distant from me in in the last week, even though you felt distant from me in the last two weeks, I still am your father, and I have not forgotten about you. In fact, I'm going to pull you in the right direction right now. Those are those moments in worship where you felt like everything is off and then all of a sudden the overwhelming presence of God so enraptures you that you are filled with the testimony of God in that moment and you remember everything he's ever done for you and it becomes reality in that moment. That is God taking you by the hand. Man, what God do we serve? We are, it's a theological uh, discussion for another time but sinners in the hands of a gracious God. Boy, he's proven himself to us over and over, and what that tells us is that he's going to keep proving himself to us, that uh, he's going to keep grabbing us by the hand and leading us
1: where we need to go. This this verse, Isaiah 42, was originally spoken to the servant Israel, but it was also spoken about Messiah Yeshua. And it's also spoken about anyone who is in Messiah, Yeshua. Like my brother was saying, have we sometimes been so overwhelmed by our stumblings that we, re- we don't realize that he's stretching out his hand to pull us and to hold us and to take us, to show us the way? Yeah. Yeah. What's crazier than this is that he doesn't stop there. He says, I will give you not only am I pulling you out of, the, out of the pitiful state that you're at, I am going to give you, I'm going to make you into such a being that I am going to give you as a covenant for the peoples. I'm not just going to pull you to my side. I'm going to make you to who I am, and I'm going to make you to a light to the nations. So he takes wickedness and turns them into righteousness. He takes darkness and turns them into light. He takes filthy garments and makes them clean and radiant garments. Our Father, we were talking about this yesterday. Our Father, it would have been great if He had just created us, boom, like that. Creation out of nowhere. Tremendous miracle. But you know what a more incredible miracle is? That He could turn my wickedness into righteousness. That he can make me somebody that only knew how to do evil. That was completely captive to sin. And make me somebody that is not only free, but able to do what is righteous. He causes us to become much more than we have ever placed our sights on. We have thought that we have high expectations of ourselves. We got to think again. We got to think again. And that is what this message is going to address in us today. Ephesians 2 We'll kind of recap a lot of what we've been talking about. And Adam kind of preached half of our message when he opened. Yeah. Yeah. Ephesians 2. Yeah. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses of your sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the earth, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Yeah. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature, by nature, children of wrath. He must have changed the nature if that's not what we are. Like the rest of mankind. This is what we did. This is what we were. This is how we lived. This is, a renew- this is an old man that has been transformed. The power of our father is in the transformation that he's able to accomplish. It says, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Yeah, I don't think we, we meditate enough in, in that kind of love. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, say by grace. By grace, by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him. Wow, say it again. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's a mouthful, isn't it? God displayed his nature. That's what he displayed. He doesn't deny himself. So when he acted on our favor, when he took our trespasses and made us alive, he displayed his character. He made us alive. But not only that, we got to wrestle with something right now. And it is the fact that he didn't just make us alive. He made us alive with him, with Christ. And not only that, he placed us with Christ in heavenly places. Now you may ask yourself, where is Christ right now? Like, if he raised us up, made us alive, lifted us up, and placed us with Christ in heavenly places, where is Christ? Can anybody tell me? He's at the right hand of who? He's at the right hand of the Father. So, and you can find myriad of passages on this topic. So, he raised us up and placed us in Christ Jesus at the right hand of the Father? Father. Is that where our position is? Is that where we live from? Is that where we should perceive reality from? Is that how we should engage with the world? Yes, Yes it is. So God takes men who were dead in trespasses, not only makes them alive, causes them to live in Messiah, and brings them close, so close, that they reign with Him at the right hand of the majesty on high. I don't think, and I'm telling you personally, I don't think that's how we live. I, don't, I think when we said that we we're going to raise up our expectations, it's because we don't live from heaven to earth in general. It's because we are clouded in our understanding. It's because when he said he sat us at the right hand of the Father in Christ Jesus, that is not uh, just theoretical language and an allegory to make you feel good about yourself. It's the state of the spirit man that is inside of you. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. What does that mean to us? What does that mean to us when I face my own nature that is here on earth? What does that mean to me when I fall in trying to do good? When I give a bad example to my wife? What is that to me when, when I'm supposed to go to work with victory in mind? Because if he was raised from the dead and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, how can I live a pitiful life? Going to work as if I'm just another fleshly human being that he has done nothing for. That's a good question. How can that be? I must be, have my mind renewed to know where I'm at, where I am seated. I must experience the heavenly places that he sat me with. I am. We are. We are to raise up our expectations to the point that we live from heaven to earth and not experience the reality just like any fleshly man.
0: But wait. There's more. Grappling with the truth that we were once dead and made alive ought to empower and free every man and woman in this body to understand that we have a power that's available to us. You see, it's one thing to create something out of nothing. It's one thing to go to Home Depot and say you got a Bed with certain dimensions that you want to make, a certain height that you want to make the bed, and you go buy the materials that you selected, and you go and buy the materials that you want, and you've got your plans, and you go and make that bed out of nothing. That's one thing. It's another thing entirely to take something that was already done wrong and remake it into something that's useful. It's one thing to create something out of nothing. Jesus said, out of these stones, we can raise up children of Abraham. It's one thing to create something out of nothing. It's another thing entirely to take something that is corrupted, deviant, rotten, and make it pure. We can have the leper in front of us. And we can all come together in our best works and clothe him with silk until the rottenness begins to seep through. But God looks at the leper and says, be clean. And the leper is clean in that moment, instantly pure of his disease. That is the power with which God has acted on your behalf. And that is the power you've experienced when you received your transformation into Christ. That's the power you receive on a daily basis when you are being transformed continually into his image. And that power is not just for no reason. Verse 8 continues this thought. It says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. It is the empowerment to say no to sin that you have been saved through your trust-grounded obedience in that power. And this is not your own doing. God, I had nothing to do with this process. Already stated, I was wicked, not seeking God. And God came and demonstrated his power over me in a moment and changed me. I had a choice, but then again, I didn't have a choice. I only responded to the overwhelming, glorious, and holy power that was available in my bedroom when I was 17 years old. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, no one will boast over God and say, I did this by my own strength. He has made that very plain. But, verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, Hallelujah. created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, beforehand, that we should walk in them. You see, it was beforehand that God created you and recreated you, it was beforehand that he already knew the good works that he created you for. Not only were we recipients of the mighty grace of God and the loving character of God, we also are given very specific tasks that are entrusted to each and every one of us. What an amazing God we have that he has hand-selected a man like Ray from the Philippines. And he has hand-selected a man like Memo from Mexico. And he has hand-selected a man like Nolan, oh, which we think Nolan probably originated from England at some, t- some point. The fact that he can call all of us and change our lives and then give each one of us specific works is an overwhelming testimony of what kind of God that we have. You see, it. we know it's not our works or workmanship, but it is his workmanship that he's aiming at in us. That is the expressed goal of all of God's faithfulness towards his people, is that we enter into the workmanship that he has for us. Amen. Remember, he is the potter, he is the father. His workmanship was created for good works. He is our creator, therefore, we owe him everything in that sense. Yeah. But he's also our redeemer, so he has a twofold claim on our lives. That we owe him the good works that he died to redeem us for. See, it's not works alone that reflect our delicate and fragile nature. But works that reflect the power and character of our creator. Because he is empowering and enabling us to do them. He has given us specific works that he called in advance. And think of how glorious it is. When God calls his shot and says, I'm going to call Jaron. And I'm going to tell the heavens what Jaron is called to do. And Jaron doesn't know it yet. He's in rebellion. But I'm going to change him and then empower him to walk in the works that I've already set before him. That is a powerful God.
1: That is an amazing God. Come on. Let's speak a little bit about those works. The works that he prepared in advance for us to do, they're not self-determined. They're not, they should not be able to be accomplished by your own strength. Right. Yeshua spoke about these works, and we're going to grasp what these, kind, what these works look like. John 14, verse 9. It says, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still did not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but hear this, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Yeshua here has rightly set the expectations for what those works look like. See, the temptation is that because you know that he is worthy. Is he worthy? He's worthy. He's so worthy that he deserves 100%. Of every breath, every bit of energy that you have, every thought, every imagination, every pursuit, every dream. Even when you think you're resting, you're not. Even when you think you're just sleeping, you're not. You're giving him 100% of the life that he chose to give you. He is worthy. But more than that, if we focus on what your own strength can achieve, we miss the works that he prepared in advance for us to do. Yeshua himself said something that is key about those works. He said, the Father who dwells in me does his works. That is, it is not my best effort, and we have learned about our best efforts, right? Are they enough? No, No, our best efforts are not enough. And by definition, if our best efforts are not enough, that means that we're looking for the Father to close the gap that our best efforts cannot achieve. My question that I'm asking myself and that I'm asking you is at what point did we lose track of that? At what point did I lose track of the fact that He is not calling me to do what is natural, what I'm capable of. He's not calling me just to wear, me, wear myself out and give my best effort and all my strength. He's calling me to what? To believe. He said... That, if, that we are meant to do greater works than the ones that Yeshua did. How can that even be? Where did I lose track and lo- lose my expectations of what the great works that he has prepared in advance for me to do, what they actually look like? You know this, don't you? You know that the church of the living God was, was setting on earth to do greater works than even Yeshua himself could do? So at what point do we start just living life thinking that we're fulfilling a little schedule... And being good because we are not sinning. Being good because we are just simply working. The works that Yeshua did were works that the Father himself empowered him to do. And he set the expectations rightly for us. Are we going to set our expectations rightly today? They are not simply lame, fleshly, hard work. They are the extreme supernatural. They are things that you cannot do on your own. There are things that Yeshua himself said that you would do that would be greater than what he did. Have you ever thought of your works like that? Have you ever set your expectations and your hope and your belief and all your energy to say, Father, I am giving you 100%, but I don't want just to see the fruit of my 100%. I know what my 100% can do. You know that the world gives 100% for a lot of things? I, 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 they're I, out
0: protesting
1: I, over on Hillcroft exactly I did research while I was in, in college and you know those guys they give 100% of their time they lose families they lose, they lose relationships they give everything for that that's not it giving 100% anybody can do when he's committed do you remember the message committed Yeah. was their commitment enough No. no it was not We're not looking just for a fleshly demonstration of your commitment. We're looking for us to have expectations that say, Yeshua said greater works than these you will do, and I am going to rise up to that. I am going to rise to the expectations of my master.
0: So we're 55 minutes in. And honestly, it's the best 55 minutes we can ever experience just extolling the nature and virtue of God. Don't you already feel refreshed? That brings us to a clinch. I'm going to rifle through a few passages, but understand after what we've already gone through, what we've already acknowledged about the character of Adonai, we have to ask a question. What hinders us from upholding our end of the deal? What stops us from good deeds? James 4.17 is a passage we are all familiar with. It says whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it For him, it is sin. That's a given. We understand and we hold to the truth that sin is not just a wrong action. Sin is equally an inaction, something that you fail to do, that you know that you should do. Psalm uh, Psalm chapter 10 gives a portrait of a wicked man. In a few verses we're going to pick out, so we want to share with you the mindset of this wicked man. In verse 10, verse 4, it says, In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now, we all have our atheist defense barrier up. So we know that, you know, this passage doesn't apply to us. We believe there's a God. But understand this. Is it any different to go throughout your day and fail to understand or even refuse to understand that there is no God in your current circumstance? That there is no God present with you in that moment? That there is no God that's holding you accountable for what you do on a day-to-day basis? How about Psalm 10, verse 6? The wicked man, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Wow. This wicked man says, there is no God in my circumstance. There is no God in my present day-to-day actions. And I shall not be moved. I don't need to be moved. I don't need to do anything. I don't need to respond in any kind of way. Verse 11 of Psalm 10 goes on. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So the wicked man continues and thinks that God has forgotten about his state. God has forgotten about what's required of him. God has hidden his face, and he will never see what the wicked man does or does not move. Essentially, the thought is, I'm fine. I don't need to do anything. I'm great where I am right now. Nothing needs to change. I, you know, God's got it all taken care of. God is the one who does everything. God is the one who, who has changed me in the past. Therefore, I could be static and stationary, and I don't need to expect God to hold me accountable for it. Psalm 10 verse 13 says, Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account. It is a wicked thought to think that God will not hold me account for what I am doing and for what I am not doing. I don't need to change. I don't need to be so serious about this. I don't need to give it my best effort. I don't need to give it a hundred and fifty percent under the power and expected greater works that Jesus has for me. I don't need to be aiming for everything that the Lord has called. I could just God'll make it all happen. God will take care of it. He will bring me into what I need to become. You see, the wickedness of man is founded upon the wicked heart that is independent of God and doesn't respond. He says, There is no God in my circumstance. I'm good and I will not be moved. I don't need to be riled up. I don't need to get all passionate about this. I don't need to get serious about what I know I need to do. God doesn't care. He will not call me to account. Before you think that you're not that person, I've heard you. I have heard you say things like that. Now we don't need to worry. You know, God will take care of it. To what end is that statement being made? that we don't need to strive, that we don't need to advance the kingdom by force, that we don't need to call ourselves to account for everything that, that God wants us to do? Should we just be at ease knowing that eternity is on the horizon? Should we be men at ease knowing this is the last hour and we have deeds that God has called us to do? No. The wicked say these things. But the righteous say, there is a God and He has been gracious to me. He has moved me in the past. I've experienced Him and I know what He wants me to do and I'll do it. The righteous say, because He holds me by the hand, I will not be shaken off of the good deeds that I know I need to do. I won't be complacent. I won't be apathetic. I am going to rouse myself to the things that God has called me to do. The righteous says, our God does care, and that's why he changed me. He cares what I do on this earth. I am his workmanship, and there are works ahead of me that I have to do. Therefore, I am going to rile. I'm going to get riled up for what God wants me to do. I'm going to get zealous for the house of God. The righteous say, we will have to give an account. Therefore, with that knowledge, I'm going to do everything with the power invested in me by the spirit of holiness to do everything. And if I fail, I fail, but I will not fail to try. I will not fail to try. There's a warning. And understand, I'm, we, we intended to take a little bit more time on this section, but as you can see, we're fired up. And we have somewhere we're going. Romans 2.4 warns us against an attitude. It says, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Whew. If you're like me, you've, you've had a boss that said, hey, you assumed something here, and you know what that means. But there's something about presuming that's even worse. Presuming is, ass- is assuming in advance. It's a premeditated assumption. See, this premeditated assumption saying that the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience is all that God will be towards me is a wicked presumption. If we presume that God will be fine with us, achieving less than he destined for us, he will hold us accountable. He has been faithful to lead us, empower us, and even die for us. Therefore, he deserves everything if we settle for giving him less than accomplishing all that he intends for us to accomplish, he's not a God that will give us a free pass. He's not a God that will grade us on a curve because we just said, ah, the teacher's gracious, and the teacher will just overlook this mistake, and the teacher will overlook my inaction, my failure to do my homework, and he'll just be merciful. God hates that attitude. The real reason, though, there's an underlying issue why this presumption Resides in us. There's a real reason why we we love to have the presumption on God's kindness. Ah, it's all great. Is that because we lack faith in God. And we have low expectations of what he can do through us. Because we have low expectations of God. Because we have such a little faith in who our God is. We have very low expectations of ourselves. You see, when I... When I'm just looking at my state and I'm failing to see the power of Adonai, it's impossible for me to have high expectations of myself because I don't actually think that I can perform it. I don't actually think that I can do it. I have this mindset that I'm going to fail anyway, so it doesn't matter. And by the way, oh, God's kind and he'll just forgive me in my unbelief. No, low expectations is a symptom of lack of faith in God. It's not a humble thing to say, well, I'm just so weak. I'm just so, you know, I can't perform this. That's not humility. Biblical humility, the Hebrew word for humility means to bow the knee and submit to God. It's not humble to play on your weakness and then by your weakness become uh, inactive in your deeds. That's not humble at all. That's faithless in God. And those low expectations are what kill, what kill the drive and passion in us to achieve what God has called us to achieve. And those low expectations are placed like shackles by who? Ourselves on us because we have such little faith in God. I don't actually believe that he is able to perform for me. So I'm just not going to try. Today we're going to turn on that. See, our expectations should never be in ourselves. Our expectations should always be uh, produced by our faith in the character and power of Adonai that we are experiencing. And then going saying, you know what, because he is this, I'm going to expect myself to perform on a higher level. I'm going to hold myself accountable to the good that I know I ought to do. I am going to say God sees everything and I am going to give him all because he's able to perform all through me. The cure to low expectations is to understand who our master is and set our expectations and faith in his ability. Then our expectation of ourselves and our ability will rise. We are going today to raise our faith and expectations of God performing through us, and raise our expectations of ourselves in the sight of God.
1: Do you feel the, do you feel the, the encouragement and the tension? <laughs> yeah. I mean, when we get out of this room, we're not going to... You, you better hold each other accountable because our Father will hold us accountable for this word being preached to you. We can't go out of here... And walk with the low expectation of reality. What we've always done is what always be. What well, we're going to walk out of here yeah. is like the people of God because we are being instructed by the Father of God himself right yeah. now. Yeah! Come on! Yeah. So let's start with God's, Yeshua's instruction to his people. We're going to glean some beautiful things from here that will be practical to every person in this place. Mark 9, starting in verse 20 says and they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw and when the spirit saw him immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming on the, at the mouth and Jesus asked his father how long has this been happening to him and he said from childhood and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him but if you can't do anything have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him something revolutionary. He says, if you can? What do you mean if you can? If you can? If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. You know Yeshua as a human on earth, as a son of man on earth. He's telling you, "Of course I can't as a human." As a, I said, I am flesh and bone like you. But you know what? As a son of man, he showed us, I can because I believe. Yeah. I can. You know, it would not be encouraging to you if Yeshua, as the son of God and God's representation of earth, did everything as God. Instead, he humbled himself. To, to, he took the form of a servant. He, he showed us how to truly be humble. Not be humble by accepting our weak inabilities and our low expectations but be humble by submitting completely to God and saying I believe I am in a fleshly body that's unable to produce healing how am I going to do this of course I can't but not only will I give 100% of who I am in this moment to the ministry and the works that God has called me to I am going to believe for the impossible to be possible right now The impossible does not become possible just by giving Him our best. The impossible becomes possible by believing that God will act on our behalf when we give Him our best. The only limitation in our life is our low expectations and Yeshua was setting them rightly. He's saying all things are possible. Nothing is impossible. Nothing is outside of the realm of what we as the people of God can achieve. What Causes us to believe the lie that, not, that there's something that just can't happen. That there's something that is just outside of our reach. That there's something that we will not strive for because it's useless. Because we've done it and we've never seen it happen. we got to raise our expectations because Yeshua commanded it to be done. He said, if you believe, all things will be possible. Whoever believes in me, not only will he do what I do, he will do greater works than I did. But it needs to be in us, that we're going to say, I am going to believe. And you know what? I am going to demand it from myself. Yes. I am going to demand it from my wife. I'm going to demand it from my congregation. I am going to demand it from the children of God that I fellowship with. We are going to pursue not what is possible in our own strength. We're going to pursue what is impossible in our own strength, but is possible with God.
0: Amen. Look at what Paul says in Philippians 4, through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Don't miss it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He got the message. Paul got the message from Yeshua. But don't let this verse get lost on you just because you've seen it a thousand times and you heard it over and over. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Of course, we know that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. But it means that everything God has called you to do, it's not an impossibility. It It is a definite possibility. Look, when I started teaching Biblical Hebrew, you want to know what I couldn't do? Teach Biblical Hebrew. I was a good student, made good grades, terrified to teach Biblical Hebrew. Told my first student, you are my guinea pig, so forgive me if I get something wrong. But you want to know what I did? I knew that God had called me to do it. And I knew that it was possible if I just set my faith in his ability to do it through me. There were many times I didn't know the answer, confused as I'll get out then woke up the next morning with clear understanding from the power and ability of Adonai, not myself. But you know what wouldn't have happened if I had low expectations of myself and just yeah. said, well, just? maybe I'm not cut out for this. I wouldn't be doing what I am now. You see, your faith in God's ability has everything to do with what you can accomplish. Yeah. You want to know what will happen if you don't have that faith? You won't accomplish You might have some things that you did well in your life, but ultimately there'll be things that are left undone and it won't be God's fault. It'll be our fault because we had those low expectations. Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened him. That's because Jesus didn't set low expectations for Paul. Jesus didn't set low expectations for himself. Jesus set the highest expectation for himself. And then he set the highest expectation for those under his authority. And Jesus empowered Ah. Paul to meet those expectations. You see, Paul understands the power of the one who is strengthening him, who is in the yoke with him pulling. Paul was freed from his low view of himself because he knew the ability of Adonai. Paul had proper expectations of himself and therefore was not limited in all things. This is what it means to really capture the heart and truth of Abigail traits. For most of us, the reason why we don't Abigail well is because we don't Abigail ourselves. We don't actually believe what our Abigail traits say about us because we have so little expectations, Do you realize that when you got those Abigail traits, you prayed to God and he revealed that to you and it was witnessed by your your spouse and your pastors? You need to Abigail yourself and stop these low expectations and say, you know what, I'm not going to believe any of that crap about myself. I am going to look at this card because that's what I am, and I'm going to hold myself accountable to that and perform that every day because that's what I am. That's what it means to crush low
1: expectations. Let's take it a little further, Trister. The Abigail traits were not your limitation. The Abigail traits were just the ability, helping you in the ability to think about yourself like God thinks about you. But God doesn't just think five things about you and forget about all the rest.
0: Yeah, I mean, you got my Abigail traits have always been from other people like bold, uh, you know, aggressive, things like that. And then I sat down with Bim and Linton one night at a Buffalo Wild Wings with a good old cold diet Miller. And I said, hey, I want to give you five, five Abigail traits, comforting, patient, uh, compassionate, meek compassionate. I'm like, I've never heard that before. I thought I was defined to these five things that I had heard. No, no. Those five things are the start of what God has called you to be. And God increases it over time and over time as you keep growing in him. As you crush those expectations that you have for yourself and you begin to believe and expect what God expects for you, you grow and flourish
1: in those Abigail traits. A man that is unhindered about the expectations that God has for him and his ability to accomplish them, is also unhindered in the expectations that he has for those around him and what they can accomplish. He is not held back and he doesn't hold people back. He knows who he is, he knows who his father is, and he knows who his brothers are. Yeshua, Yeshua set the expectations rightly, far beyond what you could imagine. It's like, greater than these? What do you think? Right? He said them rightly. You can accomplish these on your own power. Paul took that message and said, I can accomplish everything through Christ who strengthens me. The beauty of it is that Christ was not a cruel man that just set the expectations high for you and didn't give you the power to accomplish it. That would have been messed up. No. Paul is speaking by his own experience that he could do all these things because Christ strengthened him. And so that man, receiving from his head the expectations and the empowerment to carry on these actions, he believes them. He takes them upon himself. He walks them out. He does all things. Yeshua said you would preach this gospel to everyone, and he did. He did to everyone. He expanded it all over the world. He believed what Yeshua said about him and he accomplished it. But it didn't stop with him. You know what he did after that? He told his disciples what the expectations were. It didn't, the expectations didn't stop with him. Let's go to Colossians 1, starting in verse 9. Look at Paul's expectations for his disciples. And so, from the day... That we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all, all all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Wow. Fully, not halfway, or mediocre, no, fully pleasing to him. Man, this part is the one that gets me the most. Bearing Fruit in every, every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with a little bit of power. Oh, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Man, <laughs> for all endurance with patience, but but you know, kind of sadly, and you know, not really, re- no, with all joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. To share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Paul, he took it from his master, from Yeshua himself. Didn't just keep it to himself. He set the expectations rightly for those coming after him. This is an incredible statement of the expectations for us as well. Filled with the knowledge of his will. Failed, not halfway, Failed, Walking fully worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. That changes a little bit about my my day. My expectation is that I must be pleasing and not just halfway, fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work. We're going to get into this just a little bit later. But how, how do I bear fruit in every single work? How do I increase in the knowledge of God continually? How do I become strengthened with His glorious might? Man, that is the expectations that God has for us. And Paul did not... Paul was not tame about those expectations. He set them for his disciples.
0: So what we see is Jesus had proper expectations for himself. Therefore, he set proper expectations for his followers. Paul learned from Jesus' expectation. And Paul set proper expectations for himself. And he transferred those expectations to the church and Colossae under him. This is the natural flow of shalom when we have right expectations of ourselves. John 15, verse 7 through 8 says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. It is the Father's desire that we bear much fruit. He's not just setting high expectations here. He's saying that this is what he wants to do because it is through much fruit that he's glorified. He sets the expectations so high that only his power flowing through us is able to accomplish them. And then he fills us with the power so that we can accomplish him, accomplish them. So with that being said, an hour and 20 minutes in, quite frankly, we're having some fun, aren't we? Are we gonna yeah. do this yeah. Yeah. yeah with all of that said what does it look like to achieve as a body what we have to achieve together because this is not about it is about what we do individually many units make up the body but it's also about what we achieve as a body and it's not just about what this body achieves it's what the collective body of Christ achieves and it's also about what the generations of the collective body achieve. So how do we make sure that we are achieving everything that God has called us to do? We've already established it starts by setting the right expectations of ourselves. I don't expect from myself anything less than what God has called me to be. Of course I'm going to fail. Of course I'm going to get it wrong. I've already, we've already established the fact that he, when he found me, I was a dead corrupted mass and he's made me alive. Of course I'm going to fail. But because my expectations are set in the proper place, I'm not going to stay in that failure and I'm not going to waste time grieving over it. I am going to do the next right thing that I know must be done. I'm not going to expect failure and I'm not going to accept ultimate failure in my life and I'm not going to accept uh, inaction in my life because I know I don't want to presume on his kindness. I want to give him what he deserves. You see, when you do that rightly in your own life, when you start becoming guarded about everything that you do, meaning watching over it closely with that intention, with high expectations, you naturally begin to do that for those in your care. You begin to look at your wife and have high expectations for her. That whenever you see something that's not quite right, you look at it and you go, okay, that's not right. But let me tell you what the expectation is. The expectation is that you grow into these Abigail traits. We're not going to accept anything less, honey. You are going to do it, and God is going to empower you, and I'm going to empower you as God is empowering me. I will not accept anything less from you, honey, than becoming everything that you are called to be because that is the expectation that God has placed on me. See, when you have low expectations of yourself, you begin to have low expectations of the people around you. When you just accept failure as the norm, when you begin to accept inaction and apathy in your life, you begin to accept it all around you. And then it becomes a downward spiral of inaction. But if you raise those expectations and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, therefore you look at your wife and you can say, you can do it too. Because you're Abigailing yourself, believing what God said about you, you can look at your wife and Abigail her rightly and say, this is what you are becoming, this is what you will become, this is what we are going to become together. I will accept nothing less. Wives, when you have high expectations of yourself, you begin to have high expectations of your children. And you begin to have high expectations of those that come into your house. When your kids are becoming disobedient on a day where you haven't had your coffee and, you know, can't find your pink slippers. You don't just ignore it because it's a bad day. You look at what your kids are doing and say, I will not accept anything less. Because this is what God has called you. I have high expectations of myself. Therefore, I have high expectations of you. Because you will accomplish what God said about you. Can you see how low expectations is the death of all of that?
1: We need to cure that. Trister, since we're talking about ladies right now. Ladies. You are not only an essential. I mean... An extremely needed part of this ministry, of any ministry. When God created man, he created man, male, and female. And so when you're looking at your household, and Trister nailed down the high expectations that as a husband he brings to his household, right? Yeshua set the expectations, he empowered the head of the household. The, the head of the household goes on and empowers his own household. And this continues on, just like we saw in the example of Peter. But what happens is that we become very narrow-minded. Meaning, women in this place, you have done great. You have been doing great and you, in, in, in uh, shepherding the household that God has given you. Being the mothers and the wives that God has called you to be. But what has become apparent to us also is that the Father is transforming even us further. And what that means is that women are not supposed to be just the mothers and the wives, but also the light of the world. Meaning your household does not constrain you. Your household is not the capsule where your ministry remains and that's all you do. What it looks like is that Graciela looks to the other woman that is in pain and needs help, And she's willing to lay her own priorities even though her household needs help. And she goes and ministers to that other woman. What that looks like is that women that have children stop just looking at their own lives as the the climax of all that they could achieve. And their households as the climax of all that they could achieve. And they pursue further because you are also the light of the world. You can see that there is a a world that is in pain and in need of women that not only will not leave their assignment. Their assignment is at home. Their assignment is their husband's. But they don't give up the assignment as the light of God in in a world that is in pain and full of evil. You have been called to much higher than that. And right now, we are setting your expectations high for you. And you know where they're going to come from? They're going to come from your husband. And you know where your husband is going to take him from? From Yeshua himself. Yeah. That is what we're rising to be.
0: You see, husbands, whenever your wives are ministering diligently and they text you and they say, I, I, I need to go over to this lady's house because I'm going to share some scriptures with this other mother in the church. And I just can't do it because I got the kids with me and it's too difficult. I'm going to need you to take care of this way for me. As men with high expectations, you can look at at your wife and say, honey, you are able. I expect that you can do this because I, I expect that I can do this as well. When I am in the midst of the weight of ministry and so many things going on, I know that I am tired. I know that I'm running myself ragged. But I have a high expectation of what I can do because Christ is pouring into me and therefore, I know you can do it too, honey. You have the ability to do it. You just need to trust in Christ's power inside of you. I just don't know how I can get rid of these fears. I just don't know how I can get rid of of my dislike from another person in the church. Yes, you can. Stop having low expectations of yourself and set them in the proper place. A
1: good head, a good husband, what a good husband does, let's just say husband right now. We're going to get a lot of laughs in the room. A good husband, just like Yeshua, he doesn't just set the expectations high. What does he do? He empowers his body to carry on the high expectations. You would be a cruel husband if all you do is set high expectations for your wife and do not get dirty in doing the work that you need to do. You must be a husband that empowers and tells her what the expectations are. And she's able to say, I can do all things through my honey who strengthens me. Yeah. He said she's able to do so because you are a good husband. Yeah. Hey, we're going to run quickly through some of the more expectations. Because as a church, what is your expectation for this body? I mean, do we come here, sit on our benches and go home? What is the expectation? You know when Yeshua set a high expectation, He worked for that to come to pass? So what is our expectation? Are we the pillar and foundation of truth? Are we meant to be one just like the Father and Yeshua are one? Are we meant to be His body on earth so that Yeshua bodily doesn't have to be here but has us here to accomplish the the works that He would do? This is who we are and this is our expectation. We will work for this expectation to come to pass. As brothers, I'm not going to have a low expectations of the brotherhood that is around me. Brotherly affection can't be something that I have one day and the other day not because I had a bad day and I don't like the person. My honor for each other cannot be because, oh, no, this is, he did it wrong, so I'm not going to honor it today. My honor for our, for our brothers, our honor for each, each one has to come from the fact that the Father chose to honor us, and we give him honor as well. We're going to lay... Our lives down, just like Yeshua said that disciples should. As a husband and and a father, I'm going to be the perfect representation and the reflection of who he is. As a family and as a household, we're going to be the kingdom of heaven on earth. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit will be what is experienced when people come into my home and nothing less. That is what people will experience in our unity teams, and not chaos and disorder. Our ministry. When I choose to minister, when I go out in the streets, when I am in the world, I'm not gonna have the low expectations of I am just here to get my driver's license. I'm not gonna have the low expectations that Yeshua redeemed me so that I could do all the mundane mundane things that I do. The power of the gospel is going to flow through me because He said that it would. The power of the word and the power of God will come through me, and that is my expectation. And if somebody doesn't believe my words, then they will believe my works. That is how Yeshua spoke, and that is what he did, and we're not backing down from that expectation. Overall, he didn't come that I would perish, but that I would have life and life abundant. Come on. So I'm not going to have a lower expectation of an abundant life, which is what he has called us to. Stand up on your feet.
0: We're going to read to you two more passages quickly, and then we're going to close. Revelation 3.2 says, Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Doesn't that just strike the soul of every person in this room? The fact that there is a completion to your deeds? What does, the, what does that completion look like? What are those completed deeds? When will your deeds be completed? The answer is you don't know. But what you do know is that you'll never reach the completion of your deeds if you do not try. If you have low expectations of yourself, and you have low expectations of your family, you have low expectations of this body, you have low expectations of the ministry that occurs here every Sunday, every Thursday, and in all of our homes, we will never reach those completed deeds. When I think about the completion of my deeds, it causes me to want it badly. I want to have said about me, like what is said about David, That he fulfilled his purpose in his generation. See, when we understand this, when we when we see the real enemy that's in our heart is our low expectations, causes us to want to rise past that and give him our all. We know that our all is not enough. We know that. But our all is all that we can give. And in the end, when we've given it our all, then we'll realize that we have completed our deeds. We will not let fear of failure turn into failure to try. In fact, you have to fail over and over and over to succeed. It's the way it's always been. What we've learned today is that God can take a person who is weak and unskilled, a person that's faulty in every regard But has the desire and zeal to achieve great things for the kingdom and God can empower that man to win God can make that enough and God can complete that man Ephesians three fourteen through 21 says for this reason I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being. Why is Paul reminding us of that? It's because we don't often understand the riches of his glory and we don't often understand his strength and power that is available to us. He's praying that we can understand the riches of his ability so that we can be strengthened with power in our inner being because it doesn't come naturally to us. Verse 17 says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Again, why do we need to know that? Why do we need to be reminded? It's because we have so little, low expectations of ourselves. We don't see ourselves worthy recipients of his love. We don't understand the love and empowerment that he's given us because we have so little, so low expectations of ourselves. Now to him who is able to do far, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. Forever and amen. As you respond today we're not looking for a teary response that's not it at all what we're looking for is inspiration and understanding that we haven't even begun to think or imagine all that christ will accomplish through us we haven't even begun to think of everything that god would do through our wives we haven't even begun to think what god will do through our children as we get into his presence Let your low expectations of the Lord and yourself die today. Hold yourself accountable to the expectation that he has set on you. And come and magnify the name of the Lord in all of his power and ability. Because that is what gives you the ability and strength to perform mighty deeds of valor on this earth as you worship, as you praise, as you lift up your voices with joy. We're going to raise our heads up high, church. Mighty God, we love you. You are the one with power. You are the one with glory. You are the majestic one. Lord, we respond to your word now. Lord, we say, crush our low expectations and empower our minds and hearts name